today on Never Was a Gamer. Despite all his rage, he is still just a Dave in a cage. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the editor-in-chief of Orchids and Origami Monthly, a normal <laughs> magazine for non-murderers, Dimitri. <laughs> oh, already reflecting on the subtle writing. <laughs> Aren't orchids and origami weird? <laughs> Aren't they weird? Okay. <laughs> We're here to talk about Heavy Rain. The last game in the arc of games that Michelle expects to hate. A you David Cage game written by David Cage, starring David Cage, with production assistance from David Cage. He didn't star in it. <laughs> I wonder if he has a Kojima-esque cameo in there that we missed. So he's like in the crowd. They scanned him in. I should have looked that up. Um, but yeah, we're talking about Heavy Rain, but I think more specifically, we're talking David Cage. So with Crash Bandicoot, and I guess God of War as well, you had a beef against the games, but you had a beef more against the protagonist of those games. Uh-huh. And here you really have the apparently a beef against David Cage. Yeah. And, and not necessarily against Heavy Rain itself. So do you want to walk us through why this was on the list of a game that you expected to hate? Sure. So this is a weird one because this is like, uh, this is peak like low information, high immediate dislike. I think the only news cycle I've ever really paid attention to for a, a new David Cage game when it was coming out was Detroit Become Human. Um, and just throughout that, I just, he seems like peak writer, writer's class guy, <laughs> like guy who, guy who like wants to show everybody his scripts and is like really proud of them and really resistant to feedback. But they're like very boring and full of cliches and like not great. Like that's that's very much the vibe here. And that's a kind of guy that I've had enough of for a lifetime <laughs> more than. So it's not that I even knew very much about his games. I know they're they're like about as narrative heavy as games come, I think. But like I'd never played one of them. And just I don't think I've ever heard a word said about Detroit Become Human that made me think, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> And actually, I think we're being as generous as possible today by giving you Heavy Rain and not Detroit Become Human, because I think that game is a game you actually don't even like. I think you expect to hate it, but yeah. I think you're you have too you're too predisposed to to hating everything about it. So I think we went with a, a safer choice. Yeah, it's almost um, it's almost like why we didn't play Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of thing where it's like, you know, someone or why, did, or someone... why we shouldn't have played Crash Bandicoot one. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, uh, why don't we try the one where they're not trying to do something very serious about politics and themes that I care a lot about? Let's try to do one where we're having a little bit more of a fun time. So that's why we went with the serial killer one. <laughs> <laughs> I like a serial killer story, you know, like that's a fun thing to be in and to explore in a game. So, you know, on paper, if I, if it, I didn't know this was a David Cage joint, I, I might have even been like excited to play this in theory. Yeah. So we did we did the best we could to give you something that maybe you'd actually have fun with yeah. or, or at least enjoy, especially coming out of Crash, which you, you didn't love. It was grim. <laughs> 
And I mean, Heavy Rain is maybe the most influential of his games. It's the game that really put David Cage on the map. It's not his first game. Uh, it's Quantic Dream's third game. Okay. And, you know, games... The His first game that I remember seeing it plastered all over magazines, like ads for it plastered all over magazines. It was called Omicron, the Nomad Soul, and it came out in 1999. That's a lot of title. And it, he just wanted to call it the Nomad Soul and the marketing. And you're going to hear a lot about oh. his thoughts on marketers today. Made him stick Omicron on it for North American audiences. I don't know why that would appeal to North American audiences. Very but weird. I think the defining part of that game, at least for me, was that David Bowie was in it and did a soundtrack, did the soundtrack for it, like all original music. That's extremely wild. Yeah, and he's in it. And I just remember his face in the ads all well, the time. That makes sense. Because if you pay for David Bowie to be in your game, just that's the whole ad. <laughs> yeah, and then they followed that up in 2005 with another game that in North America is called Indigo Prophecy. In Europe, it was called Fahrenheit. Okay. And that's a game that I kind of thought about playing a few times. It it has some kind of adventure game-y elements. As far as I know, I never have played it. But it's one that I, I, I had thought about picking up. Never did. And is the is Omicron also sort of adventure gamey? Like, is it in a same genre? Sort I really of don't language? know. I think less so. I think there's combat in it. Okay, for example, okay. I think it, it kind of mixes a bunch of different genres. But then finally, the first David Cage game I played, the one that put him on the map, was 2010's Heavy Rain. It got a lot of press. It got a lot of support from Sony. Okay, it was a PlayStation Three exclusive. It was a game that was often promoted as. Um, showing off the power of the PS3, and also a game that Cage and Sony would both leverage as evidence of Sony trying to do something different. Okay, uh, as distinct from you know your your traditional AAA games. Sure. You know this is the period when Sony was trying to most position the, the PS3 as like a boutique kind of gaming system. It was it came out really pricey, but they'd often you know they had some kind of prestige games that they try to show off around it to. To try to differentiate it from the Xbox, which was, uh, I don't know, you know, there's... there's The working man's console. <laughs> yeah, if you could ever say that about, you know, a $500, $600 yeah, piece ridiculous. of hardware. But yeah, there's definitely, like, there was definitely at this point, especially some kind of weird kind of class discourse around these two consoles. You know, I kind of remember that because I came in at the PS3 era. Mm. Like, PS3 was the first console I bought for myself as an adult, and... I I remember like not even watching Xbox press conferences and stuff at the time because it was just like why would I want any of that? Mm. So yeah, I I think I was there for like the tail end of of this dynamic. Yeah, and you know with this game, David Cage is always saying, you know, this is a game that I, I'm making for adults, for mature audiences. <laughs> it's a game that doesn't have shooting or driving or puzzles. It's about making the player feel emotion, about getting invested in the narrative. It's a two titty game. <laughs> It's what you called it, <laughs> as opposed to God of War. Yeah, God of War is a one-titty game. This one, if a lady gets in the shower, you're getting both titties. <laughs> Please continue. Does that make it a classier game? Uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> it certainly makes it a more adult game in the way that David Cage is trying to evoke here. Yeah, and, and as we discuss Heavy Rain, we can dip into some of David Cage's interviews, some of his ideas about what he was trying to accomplish with this game. Uh, just to give you a sense of what he thinks he's doing with these games, in 2013, so this is in between Heavy Rain and then Beyond Two Souls, the follow-up. The next one, right. He gave a presentation at the DICE Summit, and the title of his presentation was The Peter Pan Syndrome, The Industry That Refused to Grow Up. Oh, no. And, I mean, this talk had more straw men in it than a cornfield. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we can talk about some of them as as we go. But before we do that, do you want to just set up what heavy rain is and maybe we can you know, set up what, what it is narratively, what it is mechanically, and then we can talk a, a little bit about the experience of playing this game. Because it, it it plays quite differently from it's anything else at the time. It's and, distinctive. And maybe since, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just to say up top, uh, you know, this is a murder mystery game. We are obviously going to be spoiling it. It's quite old, but I don't know. If you care, we're going to tell you what the ending is. For mature audience. For mature players. Uh, okay, so Heavy Rain is a detective game where you play as a rotating cast of characters uh, who are all involved in some way with investigating the origami killer, who is this serial killer who has been murdering young boys and leaving basically puzzles behind. So it draws really heavily on serial killer movies, like very obviously. Gameplay is, you know, walking around scenes, talking to other characters, listening to your character's thoughts, and interacting with objects in a mix of really slow, very, like, gesture-based scenes. Like, you do things manually, like opening fridge doors, assembling food, swiping through files, that kind of mundane action, and then alternating that with fast, quick-time event action sequences. So the story setup is that The origami killer has kidnapped a boy uh, whose father, Ethan, now has to complete a series of puzzle challenges sent by the murderer in order to save him before he drowns after five days. So meanwhile, as that's unfolding, the case is being investigated separately by uh, one of your other playable characters, an FBI profiler named Jaden. Norman Jaden. Norman (laughs) Jaden. I could never remember if his first name was Norman or Jaden. We're just going to call him Jaden because it's... The cooler of the names? It's too much to say. Jaden is definitely the more David Cage of the names. Jaden is what he looks like. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'll we're say go that. Yeah. So you've got Jaden, the FBI profiler, and you've got separately a private investigator named Scott Shelby. Ethan is also being helped by this woman named Madison, who takes an interest in him. Uh, and Shelby has sort of a semi-assistant named Lauren, who is the mother of a previous victim. But of you the do killer. not, you do not play as Lauren. Yeah, she is not playable. Yeah. So yeah, you're you're at different points in the game going to play as Ethan, Jaden, Shelby, and Madison. Uh, sometimes in scenes together, usually in scenes apart. This is a weird one to explain. It's hard to explain how mundane the gestures that you do are. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get into that. But yeah, narratively, that's exactly what you're doing is you're, there's this overarching origami killer murder mystery plot, and you're trying to solve it through the perspectives of four characters, some of whom meet each other. I mean, I think they all kind of interrelate at some point. Right. It's a it's an ensemble cast, and you're playing as these different characters through this mystery. And um, in some ways, it works, I think, and in some ways, it absolutely does not. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's get back to kind of the actual act of playing, because I think you're right that it it takes some time to explain if people haven't actually put their hands on a controller to play this game. And and so maybe the best way to to explain what you're actually doing is to just walk us through the prologue. Oh watch us God. walk us through the opening moments of this of this game. Sure. So uh, I don't know if if this is literally the set of of control inputs, but this is what you should be picturing. So. Ethan wakes up in bed. You wake up in bed as Ethan. You have to gently push the left analog stick forward and up in a curve to have him sit up in bed. Then you push it to the left to have him swing around and stand up. Then you might hit triangle to yawn and stretch. You might hit square to put on a shirt. 
You can walk over to the uh, credenza wardrobe thing and take out clothes. Like, the whole prologue is Ethan waking up, getting a shirt out of his closet, taking a shower, and going downstairs. Right. And it's introducing you to the gesture-based system of, yeah. of this game. So even to move in this game, you just hold down R2 and you kind of walk, start walking automatically as you hold down R2 and then you just kind of move the analog stick to direct them in what direction they're moving. And any actions you have to take, Cages and, and his team at Quantic Dream are really trying to map the you know the physicality of those actions on the controller. Yeah. Um, sometimes that involves you using the motion sensor and actually moving the controller up and down and you know you have to do it at the right speed. Um, sometimes it has you kind of doing, you know, quarter circles to open doors. Mm-hmm. And again, having to do it at, you know, at a at a speed. So you can't just like do it really quickly or else you'll kind of fail the action. In some cases, you have to do it, you know, as a the speed that you normally would in your day to day life sometimes. And your character does react to how quickly you do it. Um, so you can go comically slowly in making very mundane gestures if you want. Um but yeah, it's it's an interesting system. I think the prologue in some ways shows it off to its worst possible effect in the game. So you never felt more immersed because I think that's that's the goal, right? To really immerse you as a player where you're you feel like you're doing what the character is doing. Uh, I wouldn't say I felt immersed because of how often I was struggling to get Ethan to do what I wanted him <laughs> to do. Like it's. So, yeah, I have two two things to say to that. One is, if you want me to be immersed, you can't make it so hard to open my fridge. Like, it's it's the alignment of his body and where he's facing and where he's looking and what options are available on screen. And sometimes the inputs are a little bit finicky. So there's that. And also, it's just weird to be trying to be immersed in this very, like, bodily, small gesture way with a character who's involved in a story that is so big. Like it's by the time we are dealing with investigating serial killers, solving serial killers riddles and stuff. <laughs> like I, it's too distra- I'm too distracted from like paying attention and savoring the sensation of like reaching across to open the door of the car slowly so that I can get out and go on my way. It's like, we got a serial killer on the loose. Like, we, you know, let's get to the plot here. Yeah, actually, you, you know, you say let's get to the plot here. And I think that might be, for me, one of the one of the downsides of this game is that it really does take forever to get to the plot. Oh, my God, yeah. The the prologue is quite long. So like you said, the, the, the first few things you do is you wake up as Ethan and you go about his daily routine. And then, you know, it's setting up that he's just a normal dad, happy guy in a beautiful house. Oh, got a, sure is. His wife and kids come home. It's one of their birthdays. You you have to you you play the um, good or shitty husband. You kind of have a choice of how to play him. Uh, not not too much of a choice. I definitely tried to. Okay, so hang on. Let, let me take a step back here and set this up. So you, Ethan does his whole shower and go downstairs. His wife comes in uh, with their two boys, and she's like got two arms full of groceries and clearly has been like watching them and is like. It's the kid's birthday. She's going to make a cake and they're having people over. It's peak like your mom when company's coming kind of vibe. And Ethan is like, can I help? And she gets you to get one set of plates out of a cupboard and put them on the table. And then she's like, that's okay, honey. Go play with your sons. Well, well, first of all, 
you messed that up because this is when you have to set the table with the plates. That's when they really want you to do it, uh, kind of do your gestures at a at a more leisurely, you know, pace because you're dealing with fragile what China here. What's made of? Michelle just like clunk. Yeah, like <laughs> in real like, life, whips them onto the table. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, bye. Okay, I'm going to play with the kids now. Eat up, stupid. Um, yeah. So she asks him how he is, and he's like. Oh, not, you know, I a little tired. I didn't get anything done. I can't focus on on work. It's like you slept in and took a shower and now you're like has anyway. Okay, so I hate this guy on site is and, one thing to say. Yeah. And, and that's a problem, right? Because the whole point of this is to apparently try to make you feel an affinity towards Ethan, kind of enjoy his family life. Yeah. Because then you get to one of the inciting incidents <laughs> when you go to the mall. And yeah. Ethan loses track of one of his sons, Jason. The one he was tasked with watching. and The favorite, as we'll find out later. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so, yeah, who's the older brother? So, long story short, you have an annoying sequence where you walk through the mall yelling, Jason! Jason! Yeah, you lose your son. You know that he has a red balloon. Yeah. And so you're looking for signs of red balloons. And yeah, as you run through the mall, through crowds, and yeah, uh, press X to yell Jason. Which I did a lot. A lot, because I was mad at you for making me play this game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so eventually you find him. He's outside the mall. He's across the street. And he, you know, hears you calling, starts running back towards you, gets hit by a car, and dies. Very sad, I guess. Um, (laughs) So then... Michelle does not care for any of these characters. No, none of these characters are established. Like, I get... Okay, obviously, you know, it's not great that Kate got hit by a car, but, like, this is a serial killer story. Some people are going to get got, like... Yeah, and I guess this is my problem with it. Like, I get what they're trying to do, and I get, like, mechanically, this really, really drawn-out prologue is to get you accustomed to the controls. I don't think you necessarily need to do it there. And I think the other thing, you know, is that David Cage really wants you to sit in the mundane he he wants you you know again it's it's very much his point of i'm not doing things that other games would do i'm going to make you kind of do really boring tasks and just kind of live a normal family life and and take forever and i think part of that is wanting to you know build your relationship with these characters but i i I think it would have been so much more effective and could have been so much more effectively done just as two minute montage at the beginning (laughs) and like if David Cage doesn't think that you can communicate and create emotional bonds through montage, I will happily send him my Blu-ray of Up. Right, right. And you know, if if that was all just you know the opening scene, and then it started with where then you know after almost like you know a half hour, yeah, forty five minutes of gameplay where it picks up where it's a few years later, and then Ethan is now a sad dad. Yep, he's single dad. He's gotten simulator. divorced. Some somehow. He seems to still have his fancy architect job, but now lives in kind of a ramshackle house, like a, a modest, much... uncool abode. Whereas his last house was beautiful, yeah, yeah. which is yeah. which is kind of strange. And you know, bringing his son, picking his son up from school, the son clearly prefers to be with the mom. Does not love hanging out with the dad. I mean, it's pretty clear why. <laughs> <laughs> He's yeah. Uh, Ethan as a single dad is very sad. It's like. Again, where, you know, some of the, the difficulty of doing things just makes him come across like such a inept adult dingus who shouldn't be caring for a human child. Um, and I just this whole sequence, like you have another long scene where you have to watch the clock for what time it is. Make sure Ethan does his homework. Make him a snack. Make him whatever. 
make him go to bed. He wants to stay up and watch TV. Do you let him? He's missing his stuffed animal. Do you go find it? Do you get him to go to bed? And so I have two thoughts about this. One is that is, to me, an accurate picture of what I imagine parenting to be like is just like that mundane like, you don't want to do this, it's boring, and it's kind of frustrating, but you do it anyway because you love your kid. So in a way, that scene, I think, kind of works yeah, with I this kind of, mundaneness. Yeah, I kind of like this scene. It's really sad. Yeah, it's a bummer. It's really pathetic. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and there, there's kind of, like, interesting decisions. Yeah, You know, like, yeah, do I let him skip his homework to watch TV because right. I want him to like me? Right, right, right. And, and it kind of moves in... Not real time, but you know, but everything is kind of on a on a timeline. So you you can't just spend forever making your decisions. You actually have to. Yeah. You you can if you linger long enough. He will miss his dinner and be really hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and then you really failed as a dad. Yeah. Then you're really role playing, yeah. even. Yeah. So you know, I I find that much more interesting. Um, and I think that's maybe the setting that they should have introduced you to, and right. you know, you could learn the controls in that context instead of getting into the shower and shaving your face. Yeah. At the, at the beginning with, with a, a scene that really has no narrative consequence. Yeah, because also the death of the first kid doesn't have like tons of narrative consequence. <laughs> like it wasn't the killer. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it just so as much as I think some parts of that work in a way that the controls kind of won't work for me again for the rest of it. Um, also, like by the end of this, I just like, OK, I get it. I get it, David Cage. I understand what your mission is here. I get it. I just, when you're doing all these, like trying to get through this and just do all these really tiny mundane gestures, I just like picture, I, I can feel David Cage sitting beside me, just inches from my face, staring at me as I play, being like, well, do you get it? Do you, do you understand what we're trying to do here? Do you get it now? Do you get it? And like, dude. We have got it. We're go we're good. We can start whatever wherever you're taking us to. We can start proceeding in that direction. Like if it tells you anything, there was a brief moment when I dreaded playing this more than Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> like I was playing both with a little bit of overlap. There was a moment when I was like, "Oh, we should play Heavy Rain. Maybe I can procrastinate with this by playing Crash Bandicoot." Wow. So, you know, it does pick up, but boy boy it really slow start oh boy but yeah it, it picks up pretty shortly after this sad dad scene because you have kind of another sad dad scene <laughs> shortly after where you're taking sean to the park to play boomerang yeah a, a very where did your child get this boomerang <laughs> he's gonna go you know toss the boomerang in the park yeah which sean takes it out of his bag and is like i don't know how to work this and ethan's like i'll boomerang for you son and like does it perfectly why? There's like other people in this park. It's dangerous. <sighs> Whatever. But this is where things pick up because Ethan blacks out, wakes up, Sean is gone. Well, hang on. <laughs> so, so, this is for this is actually probably the most fun I had with this game the entire time. So Ethan and his son are both grieving their dead other son slash brother right and they have this sort of like bonding they're like trying to something's off and they're trying to talk to each other about it but they can't you know it's there's grief stuff so then uh ethan is has this whole internal monologue where he's like i failed my other son but now i'm gonna be the best dad there ever was 
I'm going to turn a page and get my shit together and do right by my boy. And he literally sticks him on a carousel, blacks out, wakes up eight hours later, and the park is empty. His son is gone. Like right after he had this whole monologue. Like, the funniest thing to me, the thing that really set me over the edge when I was playing is like, it even does has the exact same control as before when you would press X to yell Jason. You now press X to Sean. And it's in the same tone and everything. You just are running around again being like, Sean. 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 It's like the same thing. And like the thing that kills me about this is I just picture this poor lady who is their parents. Like imagine you're doofus useless ass husband loses your first child and he gets killed in a car accident you divorce him you have primary custody of this kid he just goes to his dad's like whatever every fourth weekend or something like that and then imagine being this lady and getting the call that this dumbass has lost your other child (laughs) you have no children left because of this dude like just picture how incandescently mad you would be at that point. <laughs> this is the most feeling I felt about this game in the entire time. <laughs> the scene is hilarious to me. It's it's awful, but like it's very funny. <laughs> and soon after <laughs> Well, Ethan blacks out and then yeah, wakes up with like an origami in his hand. Never explained. Continue. And then eventually we realize that the infamous origami killer got him. Has has his son and has stuck him in a grate. Yeah, and, and yeah, and like a sewer thing, like under a under a grate. Yeah, we see this in video, and this is this is kind of the the origami killer's mo is that he does this when it's uh, when they're about to experience periods of heavy, heavy rain. Heavy rain, and the kid is stuck in there until either the the kid is found, which has never happened before, or the rain is heavy enough over a few days that it fills up and drowns the child. Oh, yeah, and we'll get we'll get into the story a bit more, but I, I want to talk about. So you've talked about all the mundane things you do at this point. Now that the story is picked up, you start to see the other thing this game does, which is its use of quick time events during action sequences. Right. But there there are quite a few action sequences in this game, and they're all done through quick time events. And you just came off of playing God of War not that long ago, which mm-hmm. also you know, incorporated quick time events into action sequences. So I'm wondering if you. How you felt about how Heavy Rain deals with the the QTEs? I mean, I think it's a reasonable choice for a game that has decided to set itself up with the set of controls that, like, if we take as a given this approach to how you interact with your character, then I think this makes sense. And to its credit, this game does generally, I think, make more of an effort than some others I've played to really connect your your inputs, as you said, with the physicality of what the character is doing at the moment. So there is a little bit of a intuitive connection between them. Um, I think, you know, times when you are being asked to mash as opposed to just, you know, hitting or holding are much better applied in Heavy Rain than they are Mm -hmm. in God of War, where you had to like mash to lift up a door. Like it, yeah. I mean, it also is just frustrating. There's time limited things with like tricky inputs, like some of the rotate the analog stick a quarter turn mm-hmm. or, you know, tilt the entire controller in, in one direction at exactly the right speed. Some of that stuff is tough when you integrate also like a very limited time mechanic where like you only have two seconds while this is on screen. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't know. I found this actually quite effective because, right, that's the point is that you're going to fail some of these. Yeah. And and the game's really forgiving with the QTEs by and large. Like, so you 
you know, you can stumble and then you, I feel like playing it, you know, you kind of tense up and you kind of get mad at yourself for failing and then you're more likely to fail again. But the game is forgiving. Like it's it's really the, the illusion of stress for most of it. Right. There are a few times when you can fail and your character can then permanently die. Yeah. Or something can go really awry. Those are generally few and far between. Yeah, but but overall, I I think as far as quick time events go, I I thought it did a great job of mapping on like yeah, like you said, like what you have to do with the the actual inputs and creating a sense of tension. Yeah, um, that I think did a good job of mimicking what you assume the characters are feeling in in those moments. Whether you know chasing down, you know chasing down a suspect through a crowded street and then through a grocery store full of chickens, apparently. Yeah. Or you know when you're trying to when you're trapped in a car trying to get out, or yeah. when you're driving down the street, or you know whatever the whatever the case may be. I think at moments of tension is when this game uses its interesting control scheme the best. True. Um, you know what else this actually makes me think of is I think this is the only game I've ever played with QTE in it where I actually thought in some cases, the longer the QTE segment went on, the sort of stronger it was overall. Mm. Like a thing that I did like about the implementation is like some of these scenes aren't just like four button presses and then you're done your action sequence, which is sort of in many ways the God of War model. Um, Some of them are like, oh, this is a scene where you have... Uh, you are experiencing a home un- home invasion as an unarmed woman in her own apartment and in her underwear. <laughs> and like, it's a solid five, six minutes of like three different guys attacking you and responding to it. And I think like, again, having space and time for that fatigue to set in, I think that that also works. Like as well as the tension, there's also the the sort of grueling feeling mm-hmm. of being so far in and like, oh my God, I don't want to screw it up now. Um, so yeah, that that stuff is some of the better control stuff, I think, in this game. And this does, I, it's something I haven't seen in other games where there's certain sequences, especially when you're kind of trapped or like trying to get your body out, like contort your body or get out of a certain situation where it makes you play like um, finger twister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you got you have to like hold X and then as you're holding X, you then have to reach over and hold, you know, L2. And then as you're holding L2, you have to reach over and hold square while still keeping the other things held down. Yeah. And sometimes you really have to contort your hand in a weird way to to do it effectively. I thought that I thought those are really, were really good as well. Yeah, agreed. Um, there's a segment where Ethan has to sort of contort his body to get through these like electric, electrified wires. And uh, yeah, I think it's used to good effect there. Um, There are also times when I like what they did with even the sort of interface of how you do the QTE. Um, One of the cases where I really liked it and one of the more memorable sort of action sequences in this game for me is somewhat early on when Ethan has rolled his car and he's in his car upside down. And so, you know, his car is gradually catching on fire. He has to get unbuckled out of his seatbelt. He has to kick out a window and escape. But because he's upside down, everything's upside down, the controls are also on screen upside down. So you mm-hmm. have to do the mental calculation of like, oh, OK, it it actually wants me to, you know, analog stick to the left. And then, oh, that's showing up on the left, but it's the R button. Um, and I think that also, you know, brings in some of the disorientation that the character is supposed to be feeling where you're, you know, everything's kind of topsy turvy. And so... There's some little flourishes like that that I think are are pretty good. Like that's a that's a cute little trick for that point in the story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's how we play the game. Let's take a quick break, and then we come back. We can talk a little bit more about the plot and whether this game functions as a good serial killer thriller. So we'll be right back.
And we're back. And now let's get more into this game as a story. Michelle, you love story-driven games. You know, we, we often talk about how you came to games for their stories. I'm sure this is exactly what you're anticipating, <laughs> what you you know, what you're hoping for, what you were quantic dreaming about. Great guess. <laughs> um, okay. So here's the thing. It's fundamentally fun to be along for the ride in a serial killer, especially like a a really like pulpy, ooh, this serial killer uses puzzles and like, ooh, is like taunting the, you know. Um, But we have some significant issues with this one, folks. (laughs) And there will be spoilers. Yeah, there's going to be big spoilers coming up. I think before we dive into... uh, all the narrative that there is, of which there's a lot, I think we should probably just say two seconds about what each of the characters that you're playing as are doing over the course of this. And so we're going to hit hard story spoilers spoilers here. And I think this might be a good time to reiterate just how frequently when talking about this game, David Cage talked about how this is, you know, an adult game about, (laughs) you know, about getting players to feel emotions, about not falling into common gaming traps of, you know, violence and guns, you know, about being a more mature story because this is pulpy as shit. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, like as Ethan, as soon as Sean is kidnapped, whenever you go back to Ethan, he is going through one of these serial killer puzzles. Ordeals. Right. Like, like, yeah. So the origami killer sets Ethan up with a series of trials. Yeah. And, you know, he'll open, you know, one of the origamis, he'll get an address, he'll have to go there and there'll be a trial. And if he passes it, then he gets a piece of information, you know, a piece of an address where Sean is ostensibly being held. Yeah. So he needs to, you know, construct enough of these so we can go and save his son in time. And that's pretty much what you're doing as as Ethan, going through these... These escalating difficulty and intensity ordeals that the killer has left for you. So his first one, Michelle's kind of already referenced, he has to go to this garage, get this car, and then drive down the highway against traffic. Yeah. And that's why his car flips at a certain point. Like He has to reach a certain destination in a certain amount of time. Um, That's why his car flips, and Michelle had to kind of get out of there. But he he does that. He somehow tells this magical GPS that he's done it, and then it communicates with him that, okay, you've done it. Here's where the Here's how you can access your your reward, your piece of information. Which was in the glove box. Yeah. Now, you would think that this would mean that in the future, he would investigate his surroundings before doing the horrible thing that the killer has asked of him. In case, for example, the clue is just in the glove box. Which it always is in something that the origami killer supplies him with. But basically, that's what you're doing whenever you're Ethan. Then whenever you're Jaden... you Okay, Jaden is a Google glass hole. He's like got... The, he's got this like uh, technology thing. He puts on these sunglasses and then like can see it's it's such peak like magic undefined sci-fi bullshit. It's just like the glasses there. There is evidence glasses. They let him see all the stuff. He can like touch blood with a glove and get an instant DNA profile of it and match with like social security and credit card numbers for everybody. It's like. It's very wild, but so so Jaden, what he's doing is he's in he's been assigned to this local police precinct to this partner who's your hothead cop, um, and they're investigating it kind of through the the normal police service. Yeah, and so basically every time you go back to Jaden, you're investigating one new suspect. 
Yeah. And then, you know, going down, finding that suspect, getting into a little QTE, usually finding out that they've murdered other people. Yeah. But not but not the kids. And then moving on to the next suspect. Yeah. At a certain point, there is some intersection because Ethan becomes the prime suspect. Yeah. He actually gets fully arrested and brought into police custody. Yeah. And this is this actually brings up a structural problem with the or a structural challenge for the game would because for this to work. The game needs to make you, the player, think that Ethan could potentially be the killer Mm -hmm. so that when you're Jaden, you're incentivized to investigate Ethan. Yeah, which it tries to support by having Ethan kind of suspect that he is the killer because he's having these blackouts. He just have these blackouts. Yeah, there's a little and he woke up with this unexplained origami in his hand. Like he there's there's a period of the game where he does think that there's a good chance that it's him. Yeah. and, And for the game to work, the game needs you to think that it could be Ethan for quite a bit of it. Another character you play is Madison, who is, as we learn later, a journalist who's investigating the origami killer and kind of attaches herself to Ethan once she realizes what's going on, that his son has been kidnapped, kind of to get some intel and kind of to use Ethan at first, but then they fall in love. Of course they do, because they both have such defined personality traits that they couldn't resist in each other. (laughs) They were just drawn together. (laughs) And then the fourth character you play is... Scott Shelby. Scott Shelby. The private eye who is... Fat detective. The best character. By far. Maybe the only character with an actual defined character. But as you learn, also the origami killer himself. So whenever you're Shelby, what you think you're doing as Shelby before this big reveal at the end is you think you're going and interviewing all of the families of the origami killer's older victims Mm -hmm. to learn more about the origami killer. But actually what you're doing is visiting these family members to get back any evidence that you may have left behind. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of reframed at the end when you realize what Shelby is actually up to doing these sequences. But just so it's crystal clear, for 98% of the game's runtime, when you are playing as Shelby, you have no idea he is not simply a private detective hired by the families of previous victims who is uh, your favorite character in the game. (laughs) Mm. And the game definitely does some bait and switch, does some shady business. Oh, yeah. To disguise that Shelby's the killer. Straight up lies to you at certain parts as as the player. Like, for example... Um, during one of these periods, you're you're you go visit your old friend who's a an expert in typewriters mm-hmm. because the origami killer writes letters to his victims on a on a specific typewriter, and you know this guy could have evidence that could link it back to to Shelby. And while you're there, Shelby kills this man, and it happens during kind of this cutscene where you, where the camera then focuses on on Lauren Shelby's assistant here, but it's for you know. Three seconds, and you know you're you're meant to believe then that this murder kind of happened, and nobody heard it. And yeah, I don't know that the, it 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 straight up lies to you. I think. Yeah. Uh, now, what point. did we say about games that lie to you when we talked about Crash Bandicoot? <laughs> <laughs> we don't said like we don't like them. No, we don't like them. And here, I think it's a good time to get into this game as a narrative because this game really wants to present this narrative experience. I think it thinks that it's a very smart, sophisticated narrative. And there are a lot of problems with their narration. And a lot of them stem from the fact that you're playing these four different characters and stem from the fact that I think David Cage wants to have the benefits of first and third person narration 
simultaneously and it doesn't quite work. Right. right? He wants you to embody these characters and have access to their thoughts and their feelings. There's even a button that you can press. It's kind of a built-in hit system that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And to but you press you press a button and you get kind of this you know a bunch of thoughts circulating around the characters' heads. And then you can press one and they'll and they'll comment on it. So you right. know one might be hunger and you can and if you press that one you know you can be like oh I haven't eaten for days. Yeah. But another one might be Sean and he pressed yeah. that one. he's like I really I wonder I really miss my son. <laughs> press X to Sean. Uh, of course, when you're Shelby, none of them are covering up my murder. Right, 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 right. Right. So it's like you have access to these characters and you have access ostensibly to their innermost thoughts, but you don't because the game yeah. needs to conceal their innermost thoughts from you. I think the most generous way you could describe this is being sort of like a game version of like limited third person perspective in novels or whatever, where it is third person. You're talking about your protagonist as like he, she, they. But they do have access to some of the characters' subjective mm-hmm. uh, experience. Um, but it just then cheats with that. Mm-hmm. Like it takes that, which would be okay, and just lies. <laughs> right. And then the other problem, of course, is that because you're moving between all these focal points, you as the player have so much more knowledge about yeah. what's going on. And then you're meant to embody these characters. And, you know, had the, if the character had the knowledge that you have, would probably make very different choices. Yeah. And so I, I guess the question, you know, one of the questions that this made me ask was, you know, does this kind of dramatic irony work in games when you're controlling the character? And especially in games that um, are about choice and about player choice. You know, it's one thing, for example, in, you know, some JRPGs where really, you know, you're controlling this character, but it's very much like a third-person narration where you're just kind of moving them through the story and are there to experience the story that is being told to you, not necessarily involve yourself in the story. Mm -hmm. But Heavy Rain is very much asking you as the player to be involved in the story. Yeah, you can get protagonists killed. Right? Like, exactly, right? And I mean, you know, like, this game has a structuring question. It's the question that's asked to the characters, but I mean, especially Ethan, but it's also asked to the player, which is, you know, the big philosophical question that David Cage is trying to grapple with here is, how far would you go to save someone you love? Okay. Right. But they want you as the player to also be invested in that. Yeah. It's not a story about Ethan figuring that out. Right. The game is presented as a way for, to try to push you as the player to, to contemplate that yourself by engaging these actions and making certain choices that put your characters at risk. You know, which which is asking you to you know embody the character and the and the mental space of of the characters. Yeah, but yet the way that it doles that information does not necessarily conform to to that or or allow for that to happen because you have way too much information. Yeah, and then off and then at other times not nearly enough information to actually have a bond with these characters. Yeah, it doesn't set this up at all as like a role playing game, and I don't mean that in the skill trees sense of the mm-hmm. word. I mean in the sense of like you coming to know a character and understanding them deeply and sort of animating or directing them in in your sense of what they would choose to do in a particular situation. I've had experiences like that in games where, you know, I have characters make different choices than I myself kind mm-hmm. of want them to make because I think it makes sense for their character that this is what they do. And I, I really love uh, moments in games where I get to have that kind of almost directorial control mm-hmm. over them like I'm I'm using this character to tell a story as in collaboration with the game that's not the situation here like that's not what we have I think like I can't imagine a game where this sort of dramatic irony could work but I think 
I think it doesn't work in a game where the fundamental pleasure of it is sort of piecing together information about this murder mystery along with these characters. Like, I just, I think your motivation as the player is much too conflated with the characters to have that sort of separation. Right. And, it, and it's really difficult moving from Ethan, who especially, so the way you played Ethan mm-hmm. was that whenever you, you were, you went all in on all the trials. Yeah. Um, so, so you can fail some of the trials. I mean, you can fail all of the trials. You can also just choose not to do some and, of them. And choose not to do the trials. And if you do, you just won't get the the piece of information that fills in the address of Sean. And I mean, other characters can save Sean at the end. Like it, there, there are actually quite a few permutations of how you can get to the end. But the way you were playing, Ethan, you were very much determined you know, that you were going to do all the trials. You're going to do everything you could to get to Sean. That's because this game gave me one character trait for Ethan. Only one. Sean! And it's press X to Sean. So... The only thing that this game gave me was this character cares about his kid. So like, okay. Right. Let's... And so you're playing Ethan that way. But then the game expects you to jump into Jaden yeah. and then suspect Ethan and then do your best in those sequences to possibly arrest Ethan. Yeah. When you know that if he gets arrested and taken in, he's not going to be able to finish the trials, which is one of the best leads on being able to save Sean. Right. So it puts you into conflict with yourself. It doesn't really let you bond with any of the characters because it's then asking you to you know to to do something that would get in the way of the other character achieving their goals mm-hmm. i know it it, it it i get the intent behind having the four focal points but it gets really sloppy yeah actually now that i'm thinking about the trials another thing i need to say so one of the i think more intense trials i mean well less so for you which we'll get into <laughs> is ethan is told to kill a man yeah he's given a gun and said go to this guy's house and murder this man Michelle, give it no second thought. She just shot this guy. I have a lot to say about this. Don't paint me like a lunatic. (laughs) Finish your point, and then I'm going to talk about why this is... So I find this moment interesting, and I find there's a a, a similar moment earlier on when you're Norman Jaden, and you go to the apartment of this suspect who you think could be the origami killer, but it turns out he's just some kind of religious zealot um, who's clearly mentally unstable. Um, But you can also kind of twitch and shoot that guy, and there's kind of this, this standoff where you're holding the gun. For all the times... That David Cage, talking about this game, talks about how this is not going to be a game about <laughs> shooting and how people just cannot understand what it means to have a game without guns, or without shooting, to make maybe the two most dramatic, the, the two moments of the game with the most dramatic tension revolve around whether or not you're going to shoot somebody in the face is hilarious to me. And I do not understand how he does not see. It's like, oh, like. You th- you paint yourself as the storyteller who who can tell mature stories, who doesn't need guns, who doesn't need violence, and then yet you rely on moments of gunplay as your peak moments of dramatic tension, maybe in the entire game. True. Get his ass. <laughs> Get him. It just it's it's one of these things where I would enjoy this game so much more if David Cage just never said anything about it. Anyway, you you had something to say about this moment of why you shot this guy so quickly. I and that you're not a that you're not a maniac. So this is this is i hate this scene where where sean um ethan's fourth trial is to go and kill another person um and i want to link this back specifically to this question that we are all i guess supposed to be asking ourselves which is how far would you go to save someone you love now i think this is the trial where this game's entire like ethical worldview just absolutely falls to shit and it's just purely because of sloppy writing so first of all the the trials are clearly 
you know, David Cage will imagine them in escalating levels of severity. Though they don't have to be because you, Ethan has access to all the origamis at the same time. So he could ostensibly do any of them at any point. Okay, well, they're arranged in this game in very much an they may be they may order. actually they may be numbered, but th- I don't see they any are, reason why he they could, are actually. I don't see a reason why he couldn't do five before two. Yeah. So we need to talk about the fact that number four is kill another person and number five is sacrifice your own life. Which of those do you think is a more heinous and horrifying thing to do? Yeah, but if you're dead, you can't do the next trial. No, I understand narratively, but I I think so. I think the thing that that loses me the most is how much this game pulls its punches every time it's about to brush up against something that has any like non-gamic tension. So you find out that this trial is going to be to go kill somebody. Okay. So this is, you know, Ethan's not happy about this, but we got to press X to Sean. We're going to go to this guy's house. The first thing this game tells you when you get there is this is not a person you have to kill. This is a drug dealer. It really pushes in your face mm, how mm-hmm. sketchy this guy is. And then as if that wasn't enough, um, he then, as soon as you sort of muscle your way into his apartment, he is chasing you around with this shotgun, firing off rounds, trying to genuinely kill you. So first of all, I think this game makes this guy a drug dealer thinking that that is going to make people feel more comfortable with the idea of killing him. I do not personally feel that the penalty for being a drug dealer should be being shot in cold blood. But the game, I think very clearly is presenting that as like a a mitigating factor. Second of all, he, the fact that like when, when you get to the moment when finally you have the upper hand on him and you are holding a gun on him, you have just completed a long QTE sequence of him earnestly trying to kill you. And so it also means that this scene where you finally have an advantage on him, there's sort of still a flavor of self-defense justifiability to it, even though, you know, he's not going to shoot you at that point. Like, it's, again, a, th- a thing that erodes the the core thing that you're being asked to do in this game, which is decide whether to shoot this guy. Um, and so by the time we get to the point after he has unloaded six shotgun shells, you know, into his walls trying to kill me, he gets on his knees and starts crying about I'm a dad, blah, blah, blah. Like, to me, if I'm going to imagine Ethan being a character instead of just a shell, Ethan is flooded with survival adrenaline right now from trying to escape this guy. Ethan has gone through so much shit for his kid. Like, and Ethan, in the logic of this world, this guy deserves life. This game thinks that this man deserves life less than Sean deserves life. Um, and so, yeah, I think Ethan just kills him without a thought. But like the game doesn't the game doesn't make me. I don't know. The, the game keeps telling me that this guy's life isn't worth as much as a, a good or innocent person's. Um, and I think I think that really does it a disservice. Like it's like it's telling you like we don't want you to be too uncomfortable with this or too it's we don't want this to be too graphic. Right. And and it's not the process of Ethan trying to justify it for himself. Like it's not you living that process. It's the, it's the game telling you the player. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing is, too, at the end, if you know, if, if you get the quote unquote happy ending and. No, Ethan saves Sean. Does he just get away with murdering this guy? 
It seems like, yeah. It's never brought up again. Don't worry, Dimitri. He's a drug dealer. He's only half a person. No one will even care. I mean, that there's also that like crooked cop Blake who yeah. would very much buy into that worldview as well. So he might just cover it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a whole thing. So I don't know. I think this is just, this is really weak framing of mm-hmm. the question. Um, and it's, it's one of the many points when I think the writing on this game really lets the premise down. Like, it, you know... As much as it's a fun, pulpy story, there's a whole lot. It's really held back by by how the story is being told, I think. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Let's imagine that we forgive all of its, you know, it has these narrative pretensions and it, these structural pretensions. They just don't kind of work. There's, like we said, unreliable narration that doesn't quite work. Characters who should know information that they, they were ha- know information they don't have. Player who the player knows information that the characters don't. It's, it's kind of a jumbled mess. But if you back up from that and treat this as just, you know, a a pulpy serial killer thriller, does it work on that level for you? Not really. Um, I mean, there's enough inherent to that formula that it is fun at many points. But so I came into this thinking I would hate David Cage, but I think mostly I've just come away thinking he's just a bit stupid, Um, including just about basic story structure. (laughs) Like... There's so many scenes in this where we get no new information and nothing changes. There's so many scenes that completely could be cut out of this without any impact on the narrative, especially among Scott Shelby's. So he has this whole sequence of scenes where he's going and talking to um, parents of of, uh, earlier victims of the origami killer. And there are literally four scenes that proceed along this same exact formula and he they play out with the same beats and he gets the same like information or physical objects in multiple of them which is that he goes to talk to the parent the parent doesn't want to talk to him because about their dead child which is very sad which is very understandable and then uh oh no something's happening to that someone's threatening the the parent scott shelby is gonna have to come in and beat him up and then he handles the situation and then the grieving parent is like, oh, maybe you're not so bad and gives him information or or their their little trinkets that they have from that the origami killer sent them or whatever. Right. The evidence that he's trying to retrieve so he can dispose of it. Right. But like this plays out so beat by beat. It happens. Mm-hmm. This is how we meet Lauren. She is uh, a sex worker at this point. Um, and hers is maybe the most egregious of these uh it's maybe the most like dialogue of a sex worker clearly written by a man that you could come up with at one point she says uh you can buy my body but my son is not for sale meaning like information about yeah it's just like it's whatever um and then this ties into another problem which is so many of these beats are so predictable (laughs) like you know there's a fun in the formula but there are multiple times when i have like in the notes I was taking about this game, like at the start of the scene, calling exactly what was going to happen and exactly what was going to play out. I have in multiple points mm-hmm. in my notes, like, let's see which bereaved parent we're going to save from danger and then get a clue from yeah, today. The Norman Jaden scenes are just the inverse where you're going against another suspect that ends up not being the origami killer. Yeah. And you go through, you know, four of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the time we realized that the killer had left like a little box for... Ethan to look at, I immediately was like, oh, is this just Saw now? Yes, it is. 
there's one of the the third trial, I think, um, as Ethan is going to the apartment where it's going to happen, he sees there's these statues of lizards. Um, and I was like, oh, this is going to be the one where he has to cut off a limb because like lizards will regrow their tails if you cut them off. And sure enough, yes, the, the trial of that one is you have to cut off um, a part of a finger, you know, past the last joint. So not a full limb, but it just there's there's. And, and like that sequence is kind of interesting to play. Yeah. Um, I'll get I'll give it that that one. There's there's some tension. There's different ways you can do it. Michelle didn't end up cauterizing the finger. Yeah. I mean, nothing really happens, which is unfortunate, like because Ethan can probably do something to that finger that will get it definitely infected. But I don't think there's any actual narrative repercussions for that. Yeah. You just kind of do it slow or fast, depending <laughs> on what you find. So I don't know. It it just there's so much there's like weak mystery writer shit, including one of the decoy uh, villains of this is this like rich playboy son of this wealthy businessman who, you know, for a while there's a lot of stuff really lining up. Um, but then it turns out he had just heard about the origami killer and wanted to play at being him and so just wanted to impersonate him and feel scary and accidentally actually went too far and killed the kid in that process like that is not a good mystery writer twist is like psych it wasn't him he was just doing exactly all of the like that's not that's not oh, good and sorry the to just to tie a bow around that plot so what happens there is that Shelby is on to them and then they come and try to drown Shelby and Lauren. Yeah. Shelby escapes and then drives to his- Goes nuts. Goes to his their mansion and does a, again, I do not use, we do not need shooting in my games. My games are mature. <laughs> Shelby goes and has a Grand Theft Auto. I literally wrote down, this is the GTA final shootout in the mansion. He kills so many people. Games are not about guns. <laughs> Games are about emotions. Like anger and rage when you're holding a gun and shoot people with it. Just like more people than you have seen in any other scene in this entire game are suddenly in this mansion coming at Shelby with weapons. And he just absolutely massacres them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um there's like also just tons of logistical holes, which I don't know, it's kind of boring to go into all of those, but they are there. And I just like, if 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 there was any lingering part of me that had any morbid curiosity about Detroit become human, the handling of Jaden's magical Google Glass was the nail in that coffin. Like it is, it is the peak, the pinnacle of lazy fictionalizing technology where like its capabilities are not clearly defined it doesn't have any established rules or limitations it just does whatever he needs it to do whenever it needs to it has all these capabilities that don't make any sense it just it's like it's just what if a cop had had a magic thing that told him all the crime facts that there could possibly be um it just is so lazy and so sloppy. And it's like, I do not want to see a science fiction world designed by the person who thought this was a good thing to put mm -hmm. in the game. Also, what is... Okay, okay, okay. Jaden also has this weird drug addiction yes. to a made-up drug yes. that 
I don't, I finished this game. I still do not understand how. All I know about it is the first time I played this game, Jaden did not make it to the end because he OD'd on this drug. Like he, I, you had a much better, you, you actually got everybody to the end. Yeah. I did not when I first played it. I, okay. So it does not explain what's up with this drug. It seems to somehow be connected to his Google Glass, but that's like not, you never find out. Everyone keeps telling him it's dangerous, but you don't know what the danger is. He, he has strategic, very plot convenient moments when he gets all woozy. They're uh, his blackouts, basically. Yeah, exactly. Right, like, just like Ethan, he is, there's very contrived reasons why he will lose control of his body at a certain point yeah. um, to help the narration. Yeah. And then he'll just have to be like, oh, should I take it or not? Oh, no. Like, And you're like, I don't have any of the information I would need to have to make this decision. This is just a guess as a player. And, it, and that's just like, why is that there? I mean, I know why. It's so that he doesn't, he's not too good of an FBI yeah. agent with his magical technology. It just, it's so messy. It's so, such weak mystery writer shit. And then, of course, the the twist that we've talked about, the Scott Shelby twist, which had you not played as Scott Shelby, had he been somebody you encountered along the way, I think they could have pulled this twist off. Sure. Just... I know, again, it's I'm so clever because you're going to play the murderer. Yeah. Like, I get the impulse, but it the, the payoff was terrible. You had to lie to the player to do it. And I think, I think had you played this game as two characters max, maybe Ethan and Madison, maybe Ethan doing the trial and Madison doing some investigating. Yeah. And run across Shelby and maybe even teamed up with him. You can still make him a really sympathetic figure. Yeah. You can still make it so it's not obvious that he he's the murderer and then reveal that he is the murderer. I think that would have been a much better and more satisfying mystery narrative. Yeah. Yeah, because nothing there are two things that bother me with mysteries I can't take is is when they have to when their twist relies or the resolution relies on lying to the reader or the yeah. viewer or the player, or when there's supernatural shit. <laughs> but we here's have both. But here's, in our own way. here's the thing. What was cut from this game was some supernatural shit. Oh my god. That would have actually made a lot more of the game make sense. So here's something I uncovered, or other people uncovered it, and I'm recounting what they have uncovered. (laughs) But just a few months before this game was completed, there was a a supernatural component. So apparently when, at the beginning, when, you know, Ethan runs out in front of the car to try to protect Jason, Jason gets by the car. Scott Shelby's in the crowd, and somehow they form a spiritual bond at that moment. No. And from that point on, whenever Scott Shelby, the origami killer, kills somebody, Ethan blacks out and then enters into this kind of spiritual world where he, you swim through Scott Shelby's memories oh and God. come across the murder victim. So making Ethan think even more so that he that he's the killer and making you as the player think that he's the killer. But he has this kind of strong bond with Scott Shelby, this like spiritual connection that was forged. But Ethan blacks out like eight times during this game. Does, does Shelby... Those would have been each of each of those would have been like a, a different murder, ostensibly. Man, he's he's a busy guy. Which would also he's got a lot of irons in which, the fireplace. Which also would explain why Ethan stops blacking out after Shelby is sure. killed at the end. If that's if that's how your game ends, right, so so it actually that's did stupid. So it did justify, but they kept the blackouts in. They kept the part where you just wake up. You, the place where you actually wake up is the site of um, where Shelby's brother died. Right. Do you want to explain why Shelby, oh. his motivation, his serial killer motivation? David Cage read a lot of books about serial killers and their and their motivations to write this character. Okay, great. FYI. 
Um, so Scott Shelby, when he was a little kid, um, he had a bad dad who was an alcoholic and didn't care about his kids. And uh, he and his brother would do nothing to save the ones they love. Would not lift a finger. Um, so he and his brother were playing on this construction site, and his brother fell into uh, some sort of little crevasse. And um, there's water flowing through it, and the little brother can't get out. And he's like, "Oh, actually, I think it's a big brother. Can't get out." And he's like, "Oh no, I'm I'm gonna drown. Can you go get help?" And the only one around is their good for nothing dad in his trailer who's drunk. So little Scott Shelby runs and tries to get his dad. <laughs> Even when he's like, "Your son is about to die," the dad's like, "Why I oughta." Um, and so little Scott Shelby runs back and, and there's no help and his brother drowns in like a pipe. Yeah. Um, and then Shelby's adopted, which is part yeah. of the plot because you you don't you have to uncover his, his original identity. last name. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, he, he the reason why he does the serial killing is he takes these boys and he sets these tests to find out if there's a dad out there who can prove themselves a good enough dad. Um, which also like, again, coming back to the core animating question of how far would you go to save someone you love? This is weird because the, his dad would not have had to go very far. Like it's a weird lump from like finding a dad who would do the bare minimum of like literally getting off his step to save his son from dying to like. Oh, you have to go through a saw style uh, torture fest to get this done. This is part of a weird narrative pattern that I I always feel like. So I think, especially when dads think about the question, how far would you go to protect your family? I at least in the West, I feel like that goes straight to like I would murder anyone who tried to hurt them. Like that that goes straight to like. Uh, guys who keep guns in the home to fend off all these imagined intruders who are going to be coming. Like, I think the the idea of bravery and what you would do for your family always seems to go to these violent uh, and horrific ends where like the real labor of what you would be willing to do for the people you love lives so much more in these mundane moments like we had in the single dad simulator scene at the start. It's it's being tired after work and still getting your shit together to make sure that your kid is fed and on top of his his stuff. Like that's that's the actual ordeal of life and of caring for other people. And it just it's every every time this question gets asked, it always seems to be taken to mean how much physical pain would you give or get or take um to save the life of your family when that's just not that's the wrong question in such a fundamental in such a fundamental way and i think the the tendency to ask that question instead of the other the other one that i'm proposing is i don't know very like linked to a a particular like north american idea of of um what bravery is and and what sacrifice is you know um and it's it's just weird <laughs> that's not the gig the gig of being a parent is not like responding to serial killer shit. It's like showing up even when you're tired and like doing the stuff you need to do. So 
I guess that's not a very good video game. It certainly wasn't in the prologue. I didn't enjoy it. I like the serial killer stuff much better, so I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, that could have been ostensibly a conclusion that Ethan came to in the process of doing this. Sure. If, if this was actually, I think, a game that reflected on these questions, and I, maybe that's the game that David Cage thinks he wrote that has something <laughs> profound to say about these questions, but really, really doesn't. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you just had a fight on top of a crane. Yeah. <laughs> you shot a maximum of one drug dealer. <laughs> you don't feel that bad about it. Let's Yeah, let's actually get to the ending in your case. Sure. So you actually had everybody survive. So... One thing that is interesting about this game is that, you know, Ethan can be imprisoned or, you know, you can miss out on getting the clues and, and won't actually arrive at the space at the end. Um, Norman Jaden can die. I think Madison can die. Mm. And, and you know, once a character dies, it's not game over. It just, it, the game just continues without them. Yeah. You actually had everybody make it to the end. Although not everybody figured out where Sean was. Jaden didn't find all the clues. Uh, Ethan did get mm -hmm. them all. Um so, yeah, they were able to make it because Ethan and, and uh, Madison had the address. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, Ethan can die at the end, too. But you had him survive. You pretty much did kind of the happiest ending, I think. Yeah. Where you had Jaden fighting Shelby and, you know, Shelby dies. Yeah. Um, Jaden doesn't. Oh, Jaden gets there, by the way, because Madison finds the address and is like, let me call my buddy who I have not mentioned at all and who you have never seen me interact with and who we have no established relationship, Norman Jaden. Right. And this this is one of those cases where it's like, okay, the player has this information, the characters don't. And I think they just forget that the player, the characters actually don't have this information. Yeah. And they're just hoping that you're like, oh, I know that guy, Norman Jaden, because yeah. you were playing as him. So she must too, because <laughs> I played as both of them. Right. Yeah. It's one of those moments where it doesn't work. But um, you had the happy ending, happy, quote unquote, but there are different kind of permutations of the ending. Shelby can kind of get away with it. I think if Shelby isn't killed at the end, I think Lauren shows up and kills him. Oh, good for her. Finds out. I feel so bad for Lauren. Yeah, I, I like that this game will let you fail things. And you said up front, um, especially, you know, some of the QTEs takes a, a little bit of a generous approach. You know, you can flub one without ruining your entire sequence. But I... I like that you can get people killed. And in some cases, you can get Jaden killed without much difficulty. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is one of the places where I actually have a little bit of sympathy for David Cage and what he was going through trying to talk about this game when it was coming out. Because in preparation, I went I went and watched some videos of David Cage, you know, demoing this game around E3 at other, at other trade shows. And, you know, he's trying to walk, you know, people through it and explain, you know, what what's going on. And, and he shows a scene where... For example, I think it is Norman Jaden who could get killed in the scene. He mentions, you know, you can you can die here and there won't be a game over. And the guy's like, oh, yeah. So you mean there's just like, you know, like a try again. You won't get the game over, but it'll just like loop back to that scene. You can try again. Like, And David Cage is like, no, 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 like you're you're dead. Yeah. And that like blows that guy's mind. But you can tell that, you know, like David Cage does have to do some extra explaining. Yeah. There, there's kind of a lot of work to do to actually get people on board to what this game is. So in that case, I can I can kind of sympathize with him. You know, like on the one hand, this game actually was trying to do something very different from other games. But on the other hand, I I think that they think it was much more ambitious and game changing, pardon the pun, yeah. than, than it actually than it actually was. Sure. And and you know this, so I kind of have this theory about David Cage. Okay. Well, it's not it's not really it's not really a theory. It just in my mind, he's just kind of this tragic figure. You might say pathetic figure, because <laughs> I feel he believes he's fighting this battle with kind of these blinders on. Okay. So he's talking about the game industry and the problems with the game industry and how he's going to correct these problems. 
But around him, the game industry is changing rapidly, and he's ju- and it's just passing him by, and and in much more interesting ways. It, it, when he's talking about this Peter Pan problem, right? This 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 Peter Pan syndrome, this this industry that refuses to grow up. He kind of hinges it on this straw man argument that all there ever is in gaming are. He he says there's only three genres that have ever been bestsellers: kids games, casual games, and violent action games. And he lumps he literally lumps all of Nintendo's games they've ever made into kids games. Great. So you know, right there, I think you get a sense of this myopic view or definition he has of, of what makes a game an a quote unquote, you know, adult game. Right. And then, you know, as part of this, he says, you know, games have a problem because they're not like other media. He's like, you know, you can watch if you read a book or if you watch a movie, you can talk to your family about it and they'll know what you're talking about. And I don't like, no, you can't unless it's like a Marvel movie, right? <laughs> which is the film equivalent of the games he's complaining about, right? right? It's like the film equivalent of Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto is sure. the Marvel movies, right? It's like, it's like, no, you actually can't go and watch like an avant-garde film and talk to your grandma about it because that's not the movies they're watching. I literally don't remember the last time anyone in my family and I read the same book. <laughs> right. Like he seems to think that everything else still exists as this mass media that hasn't broken out into niches mm-hmm. when that's that's absolutely not true. Um, you know, it's 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 exactly the same thing, the same thing with games. And you know, at the same time, he's talking about, you know, we need to have games that create meaning, right? That Games don't create meaning. Games, most games are quite empty. They have nothing to say. And then he gets into kind of this, you know, this auteurist bullshit, which you know I hate, where sure. he says, you know, authors create meaningful experiences. You know, games need to have authors. So again, he's really only thinking about meaning in a very closed-minded narrative sense. Right? Yeah. Like, like the meaning has to be derived from the story that I tell you that I hit you over the head with. What a know? profoundly unintellectually curious approach to uh a form that you work in professionally. That's like, and and so that's it. It's like so he's having this discussion, and as he's having this discussion, kind of the indie scene is oh no. building up around. Which, to his credit, later on he does kind of acknowledge, and he acknowledges his like games like Journey that comes out is something that he really responded to. Sure, but you know, around him you have all of these games that are emerging, and you know they're not becoming the most popular games ever made, but you know they're experimenting and within the medium and they're doing interesting things within the medium and making meaning as games experimenting with mechanics you know and all this is happening around him and he's still here on his soapbox saying games are all about shooting and no games have meaning and they're all empty and i i just find that so sad because because <laughs> he, he's just unaware of everything that's happening around him and everybody who's who's putting out you know these pieces of art or these games that actually do everything that he's saying that games don't do right and I don't know. I find I find that I find that really sad. And I mean, even he, in interviews, you know, he says that he loves indie games and that he feels a connection with indie games. But yet, I don't think he's learned anything. Bitch, from where? Them. <laughs> yeah, it's like wh- why hasn't that been incorporated into your own work? Right? Like you can you can say things without them having to be tied to you know the themes of the story. Yeah. 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 So that so it's, yeah. So I don't know. So I'm kind of curious about where David Cage goes because as far as i know i haven't played detroit and i haven't played beyond two souls but i think they're pretty much the same he's been doing the same thing yeah and kind of fighting the same fight that that doesn't need to be fought <laughs> certainly doesn't need to be fought by him <laughs> i mean there's so many games that have made me feel more emotional like 
almost most of them, <laughs> honestly. And, like, and, and even at the narrative, like he in between Heavy Rain and Beyond Two Souls, when he's he's making these claims, right? Like Telltale's The Walking Dead comes out, right? Um, Mass Effect Two comes out. So there's all these games that even that might be more narrative driven, but that are still. I think more mechanically interesting or at least more narratively interesting in terms of the choices they make and in terms of the sophistication of their storytelling. Yeah. Then Heavy Rain is for sure. And I think then his other games are. Yeah. It's interesting to think about some of the some of the best telltale games as almost some of the refinement of of this idea. I mean, they are trying to do something different, but I think in terms of, you know, making quick decisions with like big impact on story and some of the some of the large scale effects that he's trying to have, you know, the, the first walking dead game was really, really great. Um, and yeah, I, I certainly can see some lineage there. This game, I think on its own in a vacuum is, you know, it's a fine, like there's there's room for pulp thrillers in gaming Yeah, and I could play this, but it's the way that it's packaged by the creator in this case. You know, I, I think a lot of what you thought about Kojima maybe even applies more strongly here. Yeah. Um, so I know you reacted to this, but one of the first trophies you get when you start the game is oh the trophy God. that says, thank you for supporting interactive drama. It's like it's the, the PlayStation trophy you get. Yeah. And he was asked about this in, a, in an interview and he says, you know, it's it was a simple way to say thank you for people who supported what we tried to achieve with this. Fine. We sometimes said in the past that buying heavy rain was some kind of political thing to do. No, no, It was no, like no. voting for this industry to change and evolve. And by buying the game, that's exactly what people did. Yeah, I that's that's like a level of self-congratulation that I find so hard to stomach. Um, that's I mean, what like I, I just I'm so full of questions about how this person who doesn't seem that plugged in with what's what else is going on in the industry that he works in was able to like is it not hard to become the lead in a game studio <laughs> like, make his studio that, okay and, so and the interesting thing about him is he comes out of composition he's a musician and then decides he's going to write his own game and 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 does yeah yeah, I, I just... And like, again, I don't want to make this so much about him. It's it's hard because he puts himself so forward. Right. And again, like I do feel sympathy in, in, in watching interviews, especially from around 2010, like the struggles he was having of trying to communicate what this was to people who really were not necessarily initially receptive or were just kind of confused. Like yeah. I, I I get that. That's hard. And like I felt for him. And it I took think, us 10 minutes to explain how, what this game yeah, is. Yeah. And I think he actually... And I think he does a good job getting people on board and excited about what this what this is. But it's again, thinking that it's more than it is. Yeah. And not seeing the dramatic change that's happening around this game that's solving so many of the problems that he thinks that this game is solving and it's not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's where I am with Heavy Rain. But uh, do you have any last thoughts? Yes another bad dad game that's a theme it's a yeah it's a it's really really a running theme and the thing is this is out before most before like the the bad, bad dad, dad trend yeah. <laughs> bad dad boom <laughs> yeah this was uh yeah this is one of the original bad dads it's yeah i think it's just you know game designers having kids man right 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 they got to write about that so uh anything else so orchids are some of the lowest pollen bearing plants. <laughs> oh my god. This is like this is stupid, but this is again like weak mystery writer shit. You Jaden Jaden's Google Glass is constantly detecting like clouds of pollen wherever the murder has been. 
orchids just are not like that. Like it's a weird, it, it's purely chosen because it's exotic and like between that and origami, there's like a little hint of like trying to be Japanesey that I'm not sure about. Anything else? Yeah. Why do they introduce Madison in a scene where it's a dream sequence, but we don't know that. And she's just experiencing a home invasion being chased around by guys while she's in her underwear. I guess that's never really paid off, is it? No, it literally is never picked up again. Why? You've been caged. (laughs) All right. That's going to do it for us. Um, Thank you for listening. As always, if you enjoyed this episode... Please rate and review us on whatever platform you're using to listen. Uh, We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on all your podcast apps. Um, If you would like more information about the show or more details about this episode, they're available at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next time with another grab bag episode. So initially, we're going to do a grab bag of more games that Michelle expects to hate. It's too much, man. But yeah, we, we instead decided to do something else. So I think we need to follow these downers with some grand uppers. <laughs> so we're going to be playing some classic beat 'em ups sitting on the couch. Michelle's going to get out of rage. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be the Scott Shelby that I've always wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we'll see you next time after we've played Streets of Rage, Final Fight, Turtles in Time, and maybe some others, because ripping off your stuffy work clothes, flexing your pecs and taking to the streets to beat up some hooligans is an essential part of being a mayor. I mean, what? a gamer. Hell yeah.